Welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll enjoy this lively discussion of relevant topics, which we attempt to examine through the lens of unchanging objective truth. Here's the host of the Core Principles Podcast, Clay Howerton. Thank you, Suzanne. Today on Core Principles, my special guest is the Executive Director of the American Conservative, Emil Doak. How are you, Emil? Doing great, Clay. Thanks for having me on. You bet, and my pleasure to speak with you today. How long have you been in your current role as Executive Director for the American Conservative, and how did you arrive at such a vital job? What was your path there? Yeah, so I've been in my current role for about five months now, um, but I've been at the organization for around four and a half years. We've you know grown a lot in recent years, and, and I came on sort of as a uh, events and outreach guy, had multiple different roles in the organization since. Our previous executive director left for a, a great opportunity at the Intercollegiate Studies Institute last fall, and uh, our board decided on, on me to take the take the helm. So it's been a, a whirlwind, but I'm excited, and there's a, a lot of a lot of good work to do. There certainly is, and I'm going to ask you during the course of our time together about some of those priorities and some of those important things. As we start, I want to emphasize the importance of being really specific with words. When people hear conservative and liberal and progressive and these terms, a lot of people have different ideas of what they are. I think words are really important. So in your role as executive director of the American Conservative, that's got to be especially true. So as we begin to talk about that work there at the American Conservative, I just want to ensure that listeners are hearing these key terms in the precise way that they're being used. So when people hear the word conservative, what they think of it may depend on to whom they're listening or who told them what about it. In simplest terms, Emil, what do conservatives seek to conserve? That's a great question, Clay. This is something that's uh, been, been the center of conservative thought for a long time. And, and to me, I think it's also that the question is at the center of uh, ongoing conversations on the right about where conservatives are going. To me, we should seek to conserve that which is most important in life, faith, family, community, country. The way that we do that, I think, is, is up for debate. But those are the, the core principles, if you will, that I, I think that conservatives uh, should be seeking to conserve. And my concern is that for a long time, we've instead elevated policies, things like free trade, things like a strong national defense. We've elevated those policies to principles, right? So, so those have sort of solidified as the, the principles that conservatives seek to conserve. I have no problem with any of those. But to me, I think we need to put the, the principles first. Uh, what are we trying to conserve? Faith, family, country, community. And then we can have a conversation about which policies we're going to pursue to go ahead and, and, and conserve those principles. So that's what we mean by conservatism here at the American Conservative. Uh, we say that we're for a Main Street conservatism, um, and that means that we are looking to conserve the values that make Main Street America great. Well, that's super, and of course it makes you an ideal guest on this program where it's all about those principles that don't change. You know, it's also a way that people can find common ground that they did not realize they might have. I think that's key too, because a lot of times in discussions, people, we just talk right past each other without even realizing how closely related we are in what we care about. And we abandon the commonality that we might seek. Although I am noticing a trend, Emil, in some of the discussions there in your neck of the woods in Washington, D.C. area, particularly where the debates in the legislature used to be about how do we achieve this common goal? Now, a lot of the debates seem more about what is the goal 
Do we want to fundamentally transform the United States like President Obama said he was setting out to do? Or do we want to conserve what has worked so well in this country? Let's go to the other side of that political spectrum. We hear terms like liberal and progressive and statist and other terms to describe those who oppose, on the political uh, sense of things, that American conservatism. What do you think is the most accurate term for modern leftists in America and why? Yeah, I I like the term progressive. I think that it it sets up a a nice sort of juxtaposition to to conservatives, right? And I, I do think you're absolutely right that progressives are arguing over the ends, not the means. And that's a huge problem in our politics. I, I firmly believe that this, this woke identity politics stuff is poison to our national discourse. It's something that conservatives can't push back hard enough on because it gets to exactly what you're saying, Clay, which is that it's just a fundamentally different view of this country. And it's really hard to have civil debates. It's really hard to have um, productive policy discussions when you can't even agree on on the fundamental nature of the country or what it should look like. So I I think the term progressive encapsulates a lot of that. And I I think it's important uh, to be really clear-eyed about what the end goal is here with some of this identity politics stuff. It's it's divisive. It's destructive. If you want to have a country that is is unified, you really need to to say that we need to focus on what unites us as Americans and not not these sort of superficial things that divide us. That's really good. That's important. Well, now that we've clarified uh, at least those couple of terms, let's talk about your organization, the American Conservative, and then we can discuss some uh, key issues uh, that may be of interest to you, that you may think may be of interest to people who love this country. So what is your mission and sort of primary focus there at the American Conservative? Yeah, so we were founded way back in 2002 to really reignite conversations we felt conservatives had neglected since at least the end of the Cold War. Um, now, if you think back to that time period, obviously the Iraq war was was a chief issue. We were founded in opposition to the Iraq war, which obviously didn't win us too many friends on the right at that time. Uh, but our mission was much broader. Issues like trade, we felt, had been neglected. Uh, there was sort of a free trade consensus in Washington, especially on the right, that we wanted to push back on. Uh, issues like immigration, we felt, had not been dealt with uh, by either political party. And then, you know, issues of faith and culture. We felt that a lot of times, especially on the right, uh, those issues would be paid lip service, but there wasn't a lot of action to really conserve faith and culture and what, what made you know life worthwhile there. So that was the founding of our magazine in 2002. Uh, we wanted to chart a new path for the right. And we started out as a, a print magazine solely and sort of labored through the, the Bush years when a lot of those issues were not too popular on the right. But then if you look at recent years, I think you can really uh, chart a direct lineage between those issues of, of faith and culture, foreign policy, immigration, political economy, to a lot of uh, the issues that, that Trump brought to the fore in 2016. So, you know, I, I think there's an audience for this now. Our organization has been growing significantly in recent years, I think partly because of the political climate. And we're now a much broader institution. We have uh, our print magazine is still published, but we also have a, a thriving website. We have podcasts, conferences, events, fellowships, and it's all in pursuit of our mission to, to conserve what we call a, a Main Street conservatism. That's good. And uh, it sort of leads into a question I had, but first I want to point out, this is instructive for listeners who may be wondering, well, you know, you guys uh, can speak uh, amiably because you're all just in such lockstep. I was career military, and I will say that uh, I was very much supportive of Operation Iraqi Freedom. My only deployment was in Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan, but I understood why for a few years Iraq was the central battleground in the global war on terror. So I have diametrically opposed view on that 
specific policy issue, yet you and I are uh, simpatico on core principles of, you know, what makes America America and why should we preserve this nation as it is. So that's a good uh, instructive example, I think, of how we can disagree on how do we do something, but we're still in good, I don't know, relation with one another because we agree on the fundamentals of what makes America America and the preservation of like our heritage and, and these things. So that's a good example. I'm glad you brought that up and that I could uh, point out how these kind of things don't divide us. They just are things on which we have different opinions. So that's exactly right, Clay. I mean, if I think about um, why we have the stance we have on foreign policy, to me, it's looking at the effect of 20 years of war on these communities, um, on having you know, servicemen who have been deployed multiple times, the, the would-be leaders of communities in the middle of America um, who have to, to pay the cost of these wars. And so that that weighs heavily on that ledger, right? What, How are these affecting those core principles of, of faith and family and community? But we can we can have a disagreement about that, right, as, as to whether the, the wars are worth it. Um, so I think that's a great point, Clay, that, you know, there, there, is, there are differences here on the right, but we can still have those conversations if you agree on those, those core principles. That's right. The important things remain the important things. And the discussion and the debate is how do we accomplish what we all want to accomplish? And we're pulling on the same rope in the same direction. We're not tugging against one another in those. So that's great. Well, you mentioned the magazine and, and you also publish articles online. I wanted to ask you, what are the most effective ways of getting your important messages out? This is the website. Uh, we publish multiple articles a day on the website. Our traffic has been increasing consistently. And uh, I, I really think it's because there is an appetite for this message for a, a politics that, that seeks to recognize the, the natural limits that are out there. Right? I think there's a, a coherent line that runs through a lot of our work and a lot of our positions on the issues. There's a humility to it. It respects the natural limits of the human condition and, and of the country, right? Whether that's, you know, our, our political economy that seeks to promote work in the communities that already exist, an immigration system um, that supports co social cohesion in the, the communities that are already here. So that message, I think, it has resonated, and that's behind a lot of our growth. And yeah, our, our website is, is the best place to take a look. It's theamericanconservative.com. And there are really deep and worthy uh, thoughts in those articles. It's highly recommended. Do you also find it beneficial to use the more transient kind of communications with social media interfaces, or is that a waste of time for the messages that you all are putting out? No, it's very important. Um, so long as big tech will continue to allow us to be on there, which is a yes. initial we're all facing. But it's, it's it's very important as well, especially to reach younger generations. Um, that's a big push of ours. We're, we're grateful that a lot of our readership does skew younger. But we're on social media. Uh, we have podcasts as well. We have a YouTube channel that we're trying to reinvest in. Um, so I do think that new media is going to be very important moving forward. That's good to know because a lot of us get our information in quick bites. And then the things that pique our interest, hopefully, we dive into and try to learn a little bit more than we could from the quick bite. So uh, that, that is good. Uh, we actually can learn a lot through those media that hate our guts as a platform. They have value. Next, let's get into some of these issues that we might think are really important these days. What do you consider, Emil, uh, from your perspective as executive director of the American Conservative, to be sort of the m most critical issues facing us in America right now? Yeah, I, I touched on this a little bit earlier, but I think that there's a fundamental disconnect between elites on the coasts and both parties again, 
and people in the places that they've left behind. Places in the middle of the country, places like Kentucky in some ways. And I think that's, that's a really fundamental problem that the country needs to deal with. You, you see it play out in some of these issues like identity politics, as I mentioned before, but also in more bread and butter issues, uh, political economy. There, there's sort of a, a, a neoliberal free trade consensus here in, in Washington that the freer the trade, the freer the people. I don't think that's where the American people are. I think American people want jobs to come back to the country, and they're not as concerned with, with how we do that. I mean, slapping a, chair, a tariff on China. So I, I really think that this disconnect is, is the biggest issue that we need to deal with. It's something that we work day in and day out to address. And you know, we can go into every way that that plays itself out in, in the issues. But the country, I, I feel, is, is coming apart in some ways. And we need a renewed sense of solidarity. We, we need a, a recognition among the leadership class that they have a responsibility for the rest of the country. These are their fellow countrymen. And they should be working day in and day out to channel their interests, not the interests of a sort of global elite that has no connection to the rest of this country. That encompasses so much. And uh, you mentioned the jobs. There are more jobs available right now in America than there are people who are interested in taking those jobs. I just uh, saw that McDonald's is offering some very worthwhile benefit to their customers if they will refer anyone who will accept and keep a job for 30 days at McDonald's because people are getting paid to not work so they're taking that and saying, I'm not going to work until you stop paying me to not work. And I think right now 23 states maybe have said, okay, we're going to stop the unlimited unemployment benefit. The jobs are available. It's safe to go back to work, et cetera. How do you think we straighten that out when so many in D.C. would really love for people to just depend on them rather than to have the independence of depending on ourselves? I mean, I think we need to recognize the importance and the dignity of work. And I think that's something that here in this town doesn't always get recognized. It's much easier in policy discussions to say, oh, let's just write a check and our, our problems will go away. But there, there is, work makes living worthwhile. And I, I think that people need productive work to, to feel like they're contributing. And so this gets into the weeds a lot on, on policy discussions, but that, that fundamental principle, again, is something that we're trying to channel that says, beyond just the, the economic and the, the monetary needs here, uh, there's something core to who we are as human beings that we want to feel productive. And that can't get lost in policy discussions. And too often is, there's too often too many distractions in this town, too many things that make issues into abstractions. So just recognizing that the need and the dignity of work, uh, I think can, can help to solve some of those issues. Because right, if you're getting a check from the government, why would you, why would you go to McDonald's? And that's, that's something that we really need to solve. And solving it requires that the, the policymakers recognize that independence is a prerequisite to liberty. And I think a lot of them in D.C. do recognize that, and they don't really, they're not fans of liberty, and that's unfortunate, but that's where we get into that disconnect of do we have the same core values. You mentioned identity politics, and obviously that has been spiraling in directions that a few years ago I think we would have said that could never happen. But to me it gets down to divisiveness that you've talked about. It seems like since we all are unique creatures, I mean we all are created in the image and likeness of God, but uniquely so. As, as long as we make it where our identity, our intrinsic characteristics, have some sort of meaning to people in terms of, like, should you act this way or this way, or should you get this or that, or should you have this relationship with the government, then we're all going to be at odds with one another, and that, that is just the definition of divisive. How do we restore unity in the United States where we recognize we're all 
a singular people. We're all the family of God. We're all also Americans. And we need to stop putting each other in these little boxes and say, well, you're this and you're this and you're this and we all oppose one another. How do we break through that and, and restore unity? Well, we need a renewed pride in this country. Uh, this is why things like the 1619 Project are so poisonous for me. But we also need to really think through and define what it means to be an American. And this is something that I think has, has really uh, been central to the American experience because we always have been a, a multiracial, multi-ethnic country. And that's great. I, know, I, I think that can absolutely work. But we need to be clear about the particular things that set this country apart. Um, you know, I, if you go anywhere in the world and you run into another American, it doesn't matter what part of the country they're from, what race they are, anything like that, you kind of immediately have a shared kinship there. You, you know that that's one of your countrymen. You feel closer than you would from people from other countries. And to me, that, that reflects the reality that there are cultural practices here, uh, again, accessible to those from all places and all races. There are distinct cultural practices and traditions in this country that order the rhythms of everyday life differently. Now, we're a young country, so these may not be as well ingrained as they are in older places like Europe, but we still have things like Thanksgiving, the 4th of July, and, uh, and football games, and baseball, and all that kind of stuff. Those are distinctly American cultural practices. Um, and again, they're things that are enjoyed by people all across this country, all different races. And I think that we really need to double down on those and protect those and preserve those, because those are the types of things, I think, that really provide unity and provide pride in the country. So they may seem sort of superficial and shallow in some ways they are, but that's what we got here. And we need to do our best to, to protect those. Uh, otherwise, we're, we're going to continue to balkanize and we're going to continue to be split along these, these even more superficial lines, in my view, which is, you know, all the, the spectrum of identity issues. What would you say, Emil Doak, to those who say, all right, but you don't understand because your experience as American has been privileged or whatever else like that. And it's perfectly right for others who have had a different experience in America to resent those things that make America, America, because at core, America was founded badly. How do you unroll that and say, now here's, here's a better view of that? It's a great question. And I think, I think there's two ways to look at it. One is I, I just don't accept that America was founded badly. And I think there's been a lot of work on that as well. But the other thing too, and I, I think, you know, I mentioned that we're a young country, but at this point, we have had a country for hundreds of years. And things that happened in 1776 uh, are so distant at this point that the experience in, in modern day America, I think, is something that we can point to, something that we can say a lot of the, the very real injustices of the past are in the past. And, and if we want to heal as a country, we can't keep relitigating those injustices. We need to move forward and look for ways to, to unite and heal. So I, I fully recognize that, you know, people have had different experiences. And, and that's the other thing, too. I, I, you know, it is a big country, and we should celebrate the fact that Kentucky is different from Virginia, is different from California. I think that the local particularities are also really important here. We should, we should feel a connection to our place that's much more concrete and much more real than connection to some abstraction here in Washington. So if people have a slightly different uh, experience in America, that's great. Uh, we should totally celebrate that. But I do still think that there is a, a coherent line that runs through all parts of this country that we can point to that unites us all as Americans. If we would focus on the principles, for example, in the Declaration or in the Constitution of the United States, it would be easier for us to make it more about 
the greatness and the, the unique greatness of this country because those principles remain true and remain valuable no matter any sins committed by those who upheld those principles. And it would be true at any point in human history. Every single one of us is a sinner. Therefore, if we had to discount and abandon any principle that anyone ever said because they sometimes sinned, then we're left with just utter chaos. You would take uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and say, well, because he was a human being and not the Lord Jesus Christ himself, he also sinned, therefore let's abandon his principles of equality. No, that is ridiculous. The principles remain good if they were ever good, and they were. So that's important to make it not about the identity. Mm -hmm. It totally is, and, and this to me is the biggest poison of identity politics and cancel culture. There, there is no forgiveness there, unlike <laughs> unlike Christianity, right? They, if you are if you are deemed part of a uh, you know a bad group, you're canceled, and and there's really no way back. And that is just fundamentally at odds with human nature, with the fact that we are all sinners and we all need forgiveness. And there is no forgiveness in the woke identity politics regime. It's just oppressor and oppressed, and there's there's not much that you can do. And I think that that is, is really, that's, that's why it's so poisonous and that's why it's so divisive. And we need to have a more forgiving culture that recognizes exactly what you just said, that we are all sinners in need of forgiveness. And I think that divisiveness within the identity politics is on purpose because what they want is to win an argument without having any merit to the contentions they're putting forward. So if I know I can't win a debate with you on something that we differ about, then if I can destroy you as a person, I declare victory without ever having to advance my wrongful contention. So it's a cheap ploy to try to win an argument without actually debating, and that's unfortunate. And that, I think, also makes what you do at the American Conservative and publications like that where you deeply look into the issues rather than saying, well, this person is this and this person is this, that has such great value. Well, looking ahead, Emil, what discussions do you think are going to shape the remainder of this already eventful year? I mean, the question of where the right goes post-Trump is central to everything right now. And that's that's a discussion that we intend to lead for the American conservatives. I don't think that we can go back to the pre-Trump days. I think that for, you know, we can talk about all of the, the former president's flaws, but for all of that, he, he tapped into something that had been bubbling under the surface on the right and in the country at large that no one else had recognized. A lot of these key issues that we discussed, trade, immigration, foreign policy, faith and culture, defending this country, Trump tapped into those in a way that I think a lot of conservatives just could not do. And so I don't think that we can go back to where the right was before that. But where we go from here, I think, is a, an open question. And my hope is that we can harness the best of that and, and push the right in a more um, in a direction that conserves these things we've been talking about, while perhaps being, being more polished. So that is the, the task ahead of us, um, and that is one that we intend to lead at the American Service. All right. Well, I'm cheering you on. Uh, Emil Doak, Executive Director of the American Conservative, thank you so much for joining me on Core Principles. God bless you. Thank you, Ted. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Core Principles podcast is produced in Paducah, Kentucky by Real Productions. Music is by Late July. L-E-I-G-H-T July. You can find our music on all streaming services or at latejuly.com. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Core Principles Podcast. Please visit core.buzzsprout.com for more information. And please share with your friends. We look forward to visiting with you again on our next episode.